In the last two episodes, we discussed the ways that As You Like It pushes the boundaries of traditional categories and conventions, and also the ways that the play strives to balance different moods and different conceptual points of view. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Will Tosh, research fellow and lecturer at Shakespeare's Globe in London, about moments in the play that particularly dramatise these points. Our first speech comes from Act Two. At the Duke's invitation, Orlando has just gone to fetch his old servant Adam and bring him to the Duke's camp for food and rest. Just before Orlando returns with Adam, the melancholy Jaques delivers this speech. It's a famous speech, but one that might also reveal some of Jaques's shortcomings, especially his lack of balance. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first, the infant mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. Then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school. And then the lover, sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress' eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honour, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly with good capon lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances, and so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice, turning again toward childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all, that ends this strange, eventful history, is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. I reckon a lot of the listeners will have heard some or all of this speech before in any number of contexts. From the first line, all the world's stage, exerted and repeated, possibly ad nauseam, to snippets of the seven models of ageing, growing masculinity. And I can see why, because the seven snapshots are so utterly beguiling. This is character sketch like a Picasso pen stroke, a single sentence capturing an individual the lover sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. It's so wonderful because it's believable and it's also horribly undercutting. We, can, we are completely clear about the nature of this slightly self-important lover. But we shouldn't ignore the fact that for early modern audience members, the idea that the world was a stage was extremely conventional and possibly, I hate to say it, even banal. 
Shakespeare gives Jaques a beautiful and delicate speech here. I mean, second childishness and mere oblivion. How amazing is that? But the sentiment is not much more original than Orlando's ropey old verses that he'll later stab into Arden's trees. Jaques takes the chance to deliver a set piece, and a slightly portentous one at that, to his long-suffering courtiers. But the crucial thing in thinking about its meaning is to consider the speech's context. Right after Orlando has held up the feast at knife point and demanded food for himself and Adam, his aging servant. As Orlando leaves to fetch Adam, the Duke observes that this wide and universal theatre, by which he means the world, presents more woeful pageants than the scene wherein we play in. In other words, some people have it even harder than they do. Jaques responds with his speech, which ends on the massive downer that at the end of life we can expect to wind up with no faculties or sources of enjoyment and care. Second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. Sans without, French without, without teeth, without eyes, without taste, without anything. And it's at that point, on Jaques's very pessimistic final line, that Orlando enters, probably carrying Adam, the actor playing old Adam. And if he does, that's an iconic vision of filial duty and care that derives from the symbol of the heroic Aeneas bearing his father Anchises on his back from the burning city of Troy. Orlando's actions undercut Jaques's pessimism and make him look, dare I say it, a little bit of a fool. There are hints of this same dynamic throughout the play. Jaques would like to represent himself as more profound and insightful than the other characters, but actually he often comes across as less wise, in part because his emphatic cynicism is at odds with the play's own direction. I would say Jaques represents a satire born of great pessimism, and in fact so pessimistic as to not really be satire, as to be something more approaching um, nihilism. <laughs> Although I would also say that the play itself is very uninterested in putting over a kind of final moral certainty. You know, I think the whole point of the play is that it's about equipoise and balance. In fact, the name Jaques suggests the kind of judgment that this balanced play would pass on his extreme pessimism. His name was probably pronounced as a single long syllable in Shakespeare's time, Jakes, which makes the name a homophone for a privy or a latrine. And I think that's sort of where the mind ends up if it takes no pleasure in anything at all, which is what Jaques does. So I think he kind of is a fool in the sense that he is, his purpose is occasionally to look ridiculous. And the irony of Jaques as a fool is that he doesn't recognise that he is one. This exchange between Rosalind and Orlando takes place in Act 4. Rosalind is disguised as Ganymede, and Ganymede is pretending to be Rosalind so that Orlando can play the game of wooing her. 
Rosalind has just taken the game so far as to start a pretend marriage ceremony with Orlando, with Celia as the witness. This dialogue takes place after the ceremony. Now, tell me how long you would have her after you have possessed her. Forever and a day. Ah, say a day without the ever. No, no, Orlando, men are April when they woo, December when they wed. Maids are May when they are maids. But the sky changes when they are wives. I will be more jealous of thee than a Barbary cock pigeon over his hen. More clamorous than a parrot against rain. More newfangled than an ape. More giddy in my desires than a monkey. I will weep for nothing, like Diana in the fountain. And I will do that when you are disposed to be merry. I will laugh like a hyena. And that when thou art inclined to sleep. But will my Rosalind do so? By my life, she will do as I do. Oh, but she is wise. Or else she could not have the wit to do this. The wiser, the waywarder. Make the doors upon a woman's wit, and it will out at the casement. Shut that, and twill out at the keyhole. Stop that, twill fly with the smoke out the chimney. A man that hath a wife with such a wit, he might say, wit with a wilt. Nay, you might keep that check for it till you met your wife's wit going to your neighbour's bed. And what wit could wit have to excuse that? Marry, to say she came to seek you there. You shall never take her without her answer unless you take her without her tongue. Oh, that woman that cannot make her fault her husband's occasion, let her never nurse her child herself, for she will breed it like a fool. So this is the Rosalind Orlando exchange. So there is a lot happening in this exchange, and I think it makes sense to think about it in its dramatic context. Rosalind, as Ganymede, as Rosalind, has just married Orlando, with Celia an outraged witness and priest. So this is kind of their first exchange as a married couple. I mean, of course, they're not like precisely married married yet, as that happens at Hyman's hand at the end of the play. But they are skirting very close to the legal wind in conducting what was known as a ceremony de presenti, or an irregular marriage without a priest, sometimes considered legally binding. Which might explain Celia's shock at... Rosalind's boldness in taking Orlando's hand like this. And then maybe to our surprise, Rosalind pursues a classically misogynist sentiment here that the excitable bridegroom is likely to find his vivacious new bride an intolerable nag before too long. As Rosalind says, I will be more jealous of thee than a Barbary cock pigeon over his hen, more clamorous, more noisy than a parrot against rain, more newfangled than an ape wanting more new stuff and expensive goodies, more giddy in my desires than a monkey. I will weep for nothing like Diana in the fountain. I'll just burst into tears on no uh, reason whatsoever. And I will do that when you are disposed to be merry. So when you're in a great mood, I will be weeping uh, my eyes out. I will laugh like a hyena and that when thou art inclined to sleep. So she'll do everything that's disruptive to Orlando's uh, um, uh, 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 happy life. 
And she moreover suggests that Rosalind's wit is a cover for her insatiable sexual appetite, her wayward wisdom carrying her beyond the bounds of the home to her neighbour's bed, where, if discovered, she will simply say that she has come in search of her husband. So what does Rosalind mean? Is she in earnest? No, I don't think so. This is part of the erotic game that she's playing with Orlando. We see more of it in the exchange after this excerpt. Orlando leaves. Uh, He says he has to attend the Duke at dinner. Uh, So clearly the Duke's feudal habits uh, persist even in the Greenwood. And Rosalind immediately affects a sort of romantic despair at being the abandoned wife. Oh, that flattering tongue of yours won me, she says. Tis but one cast away and so come death. Clearly, she's joking. And as Rosalind later explains to Celia, she really is in a sort of love madness, which is how Elizabethans thought of extreme passion. Love, like any strong emotion, was an imbalance of the humours and it made people behave in strange and atypical ways. Here, Rosalind, pretending to be Ganymede, pretending to be Rosalind, the most self-confident and assertive of women, play acts being a subtle and cunning adulterer as a way of arousing and exciting Orlando. I mean, no wonder Celia is shocked. From the 18th century onwards, the part of Rosalind did become a role for actresses to embrace their allure and show off their self-confidence. The play holds the stage for the next 300 years, becomes very popular, and becomes very popular partly because it's a wonderful opportunity for actresses playing Rosalind as a part, uh, as an emotional journey, but also as what's called a trouser role, as a way for actresses to show off their legs, to to kind of really claim the stage as a very sort of, with a sort of self, kind of erotic self-confidence. And of course, that eroticism comes not only from Rosalind's jokes about her neighbour's bed, but from the fact that her performance as Orlando's wife is still overlaying her performance as Ganymede. As we noted in episode one, it's highly significant that Rosalind adopts the name of the beautiful shepherd boy who became the lover of Zeus, the king of the gods. This name captures the distinctive allure that Rosalind's male avatar might have for Orlando. It also suggests how disruptive this new relationship might be to existing ties. The Orlando-Ganymede relationship fractures the relationship between Rosalind and Celia, as the Ganymede-Jupiter relationship also disturbed an existing couple. The significance about that Ganymede-Jupiter, Ganymede-Jove relationship is that in most retellings, Ganymede's arrival in Olympus causes massive friction with Jupiter's wife, Juno, who is seriously not pleased to see her husband's attentions uh, fastened on a beautiful young man. So across Europe from classical antiquity until well into the 17th century and beyond, Ganymede is a symbol of youthful male sexual allure, primarily for other men, and also of the domestic disturbances that might erupt when a master was smitten with particularly a servant or a junior, but also any any male lover. 
Uh, and we see Ganymede used in that way in satires and poetry and other plays all across the period. This speech is the epilogue to the play, delivered by Rosalind after the main action has ended. Traditionally, epilogues brought the play to a full conclusion and invited the audience to applaud. It is not the fashion to see the lady the epilogue, but it is no more unhandsome than to see the lord the prologue. If it be true that good wine needs no bush, tis true that a good play needs no epilogue. Yet to good wine they do use good bushes, and good plays prove the better by the help of good epilogues. Oh, what a case am I in, then, that I'm neither a good epilogue nor can I insinuate with you in the behalf of a good play. I am not furnished like a beggar, therefore to beg will not become me. My way is to conjure you. And I'll begin with the women. I charge you, O women, for the love you bear to men, to like as much of this play as please you. And I charge you, O men, for the love you bear to women, as I perceive by your simpering none of you hates them, that between you and the women the play may please. If I were a woman, I would kiss as many of you as had beards that please me, complexions that liked me, and breaths that I defied not. And I am sure as many as have good beards or good faces or sweet breaths will, for my kind offer, when I make curtsy, bid me farewell. Uh, So this is the epilogue. So here's a rarity. This is one of very few early modern plays to feature an epilogue spoken by a female character. Before As You Like It, only one other survives in John Lilly's Galatea from some years earlier. Although in that play, it's possible that the female character has already been magically transformed into a boy, so it might not count. But this epilogue in As You Like It does what epilogues are supposed to do, which is appeal to the audience for plaudits, to manage the conclusions and opinions of the spectators, and suggest a way for them to interpret what they've just seen. And on its own terms, it does just that. The play has finished, the characters have left the stage, possibly Rosalind leaves and re-enters, or possibly she never leaves. But at this point, we can be pretty sure that she is as that she is dressed and appearing as Rosalind, not as Ganymede, partly because that's the implication of the end of the scene previously, the the closing scene of the play, but also because she says at the very start of this epilogue, it is not the fashion to see the lady, the epilogue, which wouldn't work quite as well if she was still dressed as Ganymede. Rosalind, as the epilogue, asks the men and women in the audience to like as much of this play as please you, and invites them, as she curtsies and leaves the stage, to bid me farewell, to give her a good round of applause. But when we start unpicking the tactics, we might be rather surprised by the figure who is revealed to us on the stage. I mean, this is Rosalind, the play's heroine who, in the previous scene, uh, has returned to the stage, having shed her disguise as Ganymede, to marry Orlando. And she's dressed like a courtly elite woman, a proper lady. Or is she? Like Rosalind, the Rosalind we've come to know, She presents herself, this epilogue, she stages herself as a sort of romance expert, interposing herself in the battle of the sexes to appeal 
to both women and men for the respective love they bear each other to approve of the play. And in doing so, she presents herself as an alluring figure to both groups, flirtatiously offering to kiss as many of the men, does she include the women she might do, as she fancied. O men, for the love you bear the women, as I perceive by your simpering none of you hates them, that between you and the women the play may please. But in the closing sentences, Rosalind makes assumptions about her gender instantly unstable. If I were a woman, she claims, if I were a woman, I would kiss as many of you as had beards that pleased me, complexions that liked me, and breaths that I defied not. Because, of course, she isn't a woman at this point. Rosalind is a boy. Not Ganymede, but the boy actor who performed the role. The epilogue, as is typical, is spoken by the artisan and not by the artwork. This is the voice of an adolescent boy actor from the Elizabethan stage, speaking with confidence and surprising sexual frankness to an audience who he has just seduced. As Rosalind, the epilogue speaker, finishes by saying, And I am sure as many as have good beards or good faces or sweet breaths will, for my kind offer, when I make curtsy, bid me farewell. We see coming together many of the lines that, as you like it, presents to us as audience members, as readers of Shakespeare, as consumers of literary culture and literature. The ways in which this play deals with seduction and wooing, the ways in which this play deals with gender and sexual identity, and really the way the play deals with art, artistry and theatre as a construction. So in raising so many questions about performance and identity and romance and seduction and courtship. The epilogue really brings together so many of the questions and topics that makes As You Like It so enduringly fascinating. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances from the following actors. Anton Lesser for Jacques, All the World's a Stage. Amanda Harris for Rosalind and Orlando, Now Tell Me How Long You Would Have Her. Amanda Harris for Rosalind, It Is Not the Fashion to See the Lady the Epilogue. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber's Shakespeare After All. Susan Snyder's As You Like It, A Modern Perspective, and the following editions of As You Like It, the 2016 Norton Shakespeare and the 2007 RSC Shakespeare. For full details on these sources, see our course webpage at shakespeareforall.com. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can gain access to the full course by going to himalaya.com slash Shakespeare. Thank you for listening. See you next time.